This is Reconstructing Christianity. Join us as we encourage believers to reconstruct the heart of the Christian faith in this deconstructing world. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Reconstructing Christianity. I hope after the last episode that you were able to lose some of your friends and make people mad. So, going into this episode, we're going to take quite a bit of a tone change. Um, completely different subject matter altogether. And, um, you know, for this episode, you might want to put your thinking caps on and this is the episode where we may bore you and we may lose all five of our listeners just because of the subject matter. We'll lose probably half of our half of our ten of our ten followers. <laughs> yes. But you know, this this topic is important and we'll get into why it is. But uh you know, Kendrick, what are we going over today? So today we'll be going over eschatology and specifically the dating of everything that's that relates to eschatology yeah and um kendrick what is eschatology well it's a study of the end times it's uh, it's where we talk about tribulation um the kingdom and um and the return of christ um which we do believe so yes yeah and we'll get into that um so why is this topic important? This seems like a strange thing to put in our podcast about reconstructing Christianity. Why in the world would we cover this? Well, I think contrary to popular opinion, and even to my own, probably like a few years back, I've realized that eschatology is um, really important. Because if you have a view, and we've been harping on this since the beginning... If you think that the church will fail on earth and that's what's destined to do, you're going to have a mindset. If you think that the church will succeed, will will prosper, will thrive, that's your mindset. And yeah. even beyond that, I mean, if you think the church will get raptured up before things get really bad, well, that's also going to affect you. You're going to be like, well, things are getting bad, but... You know, I, I'm not worried about it. I don't really have to do a whole lot. Christ is going to come back and rapture me. Yeah, and uh, you don't have to leave your inheritance to anyone. You don't have to take care of your children. You know, Christ is coming back, so he'll take care of everything. Yeah, and, you know, it's funny because, you know, people hear us saying these things and they're like, my view doesn't have any implication. And then you bring up things like a inheritance like passing things off to other generations and guess what those things don't happen anymore (laughs) yeah it's funny how um you you say oh my view doesn't have any implications and whenever it comes down to money that's whenever it gets (laughs) so anyways um so, well, yeah, let's hop in um, and let's let's discuss, um, you know, I think the two different viewpoints. And this is um, a generational gap, I think, 
um, you have what I call your um, boomer news theology, um, where people basically derive all their theology on the end times based on what happens in the news cycle. Yeah, um, in the uh, 1940s, it was all about Israel gaining its own nation. In the 70s, it was all about Israel getting attacked. And then you had the Russians uh, attacking Israel. And then you have, now you have China. Ooh, China. The, um, <laughs> I think um, there have been prophecies from these dispies about China uh, for like probably 10 years or so. I think that's the recent one. Well, the most recent is COVID-19. Oh, really? 2020. There oh, you go. Should have known. Somewhere in the Bible it says there's going to be bad diseases, so it's the end times. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> not to mention that it wasn't that bad, but... Yeah, well, yeah. That came and went, just like all the other things. Um, <laughs> so you have that view, um, and you, you see this on Facebook and stuff like that all the time, where literally anything happens in the news and all these boomers are losing their minds, saying it's the end times. Yeah, I remember this uh, Twitter account that I follow, you know, just for just for kicks and giggles. That um, it's called like End Times Countdown or something. Oh like that. boy! And it talks about like all these different news cycles, but um, that seems to be the boomer the boomer mentality. What's the uh, zoomer mentality? Yeah, so the zoomer mentality, you know, often. I've seen this go hand in hand often with deconstruction. So on Twitter, I've heard people directly cite how, you know, you have all these people in the church predicting the end times for basically your whole life growing up in the church. And now we're adults and nothing has changed. So it's causing people to lose their faith sometimes. And, I'm not saying that it causes people to apostatize because that ultimately is their own heart. But we're also not helping the issue either with the the view that we're taking on these things. So you're saying that the four blood moons <laughs> wasn't I mean, is making people leave the church for its absolute foolishness? Yeah, yeah, it is foolishness, and um, yeah, you're, we're not helping our case here, guys. This is why we need to think through some of these issues because I, I grew up in in church all my life and I've heard so many times people predicting the end and then, you know, the next year nothing's happened, next year nothing's happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it almost makes me a little sad for the older people in the church because they are relying so hard on Christ returning and rapturing them. And oftentimes things just get worse, and I've seen them just die and not get raptured. Yeah, and the uh, ones who are alive and remain um, are just kind of defeated. It's sad to see that, and I have a real heart for these old, for these elder saints, and um, you know we have hearts too, and it makes us sad that. These people just live in such a defeated. Yeah, it's almost like all their like soul and their passion has been just wiped out. Yeah, and we don't want to come from this from an angle of disrespect towards the older generations because I, I do believe in honoring our fathers and our mothers, and I think that even goes beyond them. But to you know the elders in the church, so we don't want to disrespect them. 
but we do think there's a better way to approach these things and a way that is more constructive to Christianity. And I think a lot of these views have unfortunately damaged Christianity quite a bit. Yeah, we're not out here to diss anyone, but we're here to kind of, we're here in order to honor our father and our mother to give them some hope. Yeah, so going based on that, Kendrick, what is the position we're going to go forth? And this is just a starting point. We're doing several episodes on this, but this episode, what's the position we're going to take? Um, we are taking the preterist route. Um, Which means? Well, preterist means is Latin for past. So that um, what Jesus said in Matthew 24, well, most, most, keyword most of yes. Revelation is about is about 70 AD, things that happened in the past. We're not going off into future. We're not, there are no Apache helicopters in our theology. <laughs> um, there's just, most of it happened in the past. There are things about the second coming that are talking about in Revelation, but it's mainly talking about past, the things, the things that were, the things that will soon happen. Yeah, and, you know, just to help understand a little better, so there's two positions, really. There's the preterist position, which means, you know, these prophecies are in the past, and then there's the futurist position, which places largely revelation and these end times passages in the future. Now, everyone has some futurist and preterist beliefs, okay? No one believes all prophecies in the Bible have been fulfilled, unless you're full preterist, but we'll talk about that later. And no one believes that all prophecies are in the future and that none of them have been fulfilled. Those would both be heretical positions. Everyone believes some prophecy is fulfilled and there's some prophecy yet to come. Amen, brother. So our job here is to iron out which prophecies have been fulfilled and which ones are still in the future. Yeah, and... I think the only way to do that properly is to take the preterist position because like I said we don't have any Apache helicopters we don't have drones we don't have bioengineered locusts <laughs> in our theology we want to go with what the text says and it's because of our Baptist theology that we go this route this uh, Baptist Reformed Baptist theology yeah, and I hope that this, um, you know, for people that don't really have a strong view on Revelation or often have a muddled, confused view of it, I hope this is a breath of fresh air and will bring clarity um, and hopefully not confuse you as it's been, you know, presented to you in the past because, you know, Revelation is an unveiling. That's literally what the term means. But oftentimes it just people convolute it so much that it just becomes failed but it's supposed to be unveiled it's supposed to be clear to us so that being said um there's four places in the bible really that talk about the end times um you have matthew mark and luke now for some reason john doesn't have a chapter on the end times which is interesting why do you think that is kendrick Hmm. 
Well, it's obvious that John just never really gave... No. He gave it a lot of detail. It's in his... It's in the revelation. The revelation to John from Jesus. That's his, That's Jesus' end times theology to John. Yeah, you could almost say that John just built a lot more ink on the issue than the other three did. Maybe that's due to it being a vision to him or whatnot, but... You can see Revelation as John's account of the the end times. So you have these four parallel accounts. This is his Matthew twenty four in his uh, in his uh, end times account. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, let's set the stage. What's going on in these end times views? Who's who's in power? Um, how's the church looking? How's the the Jews looking? How's all this happening in Matthew 24, Revelation, Luke, Mark? What's it look like? Well, I would say it's obvious that the that the Jews have out have allied themselves with um with Rome and on this um on the issue of Jesus crucifixion and the issue with the Christians um there's a uh, in fact, in Revelation, you have uh, the the uh, you have the beast um, coming for and allying allying himself with the uh, with the Leviathan from the sea. Yep. Which I would say is uh, Israel uh, allying him allying uh, herself with Rome. Um. So the setting would be that the church is at. The church is actively getting persecuted. It's thriving, but it's still getting persecuted. Um, just as Jesus said that these people will persecute you. Uh, it's the continuation of what Paul said. The These persecutions that have been happening all throughout, um, all throughout the first century after Jesus was crucified. Yeah, I think it's pretty undeniable that in the setting, obviously Rome's in power. Um, all throughout the epistles and the New Testament, I mean, it's clear. Yeah. I mean, it's clear the church is suffering some pretty heavy persecution. It's clear Israel is rejecting their Messiah that has come. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is kind of the setting of, you know, what's to come. Um Where's a good part to start our journey into the end times? So, let's start at the abomination, desolation. That's in Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. Okay, verse 31. Daniel eleven thirty-one. Forces from here shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination... That makes desolate. Gasp. Yeah, so here you can... It's clear it's talking about um, something happening in the temple that's an abomination. And that abomination will be made desolate. There will be judgment upon that abomination. So it's clearly talking about something future. It's in It's in the distant future. It's going to happen to Israel. One, no. Well... You know, in that passage in Daniel, yes, that is correct. Now, in our context, no, that's not correct. Um, 
but you know we'll get into that <laughs> so let's start um, the um, abomination of desolation that's in 24 but you know all good theology puts things in context so let's start in verse I'm sorry in chapter 23 Matthew chapter 23 woe to you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous saying if we had lived in the days of our fathers we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets thus you witness against yourself that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets fill up then the measure of your fathers you serpents you brood of vipers how are you to escape the sentence to hell therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. And here's the key verse, 36. Truly, I say to you, all those things will come upon this generation. Wait, 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 hold on. Yeah, so, um, you know, in the context of what we just read, who's this generation? Well, it's obviously future people, future Christians. Yeah, 2,000 years from then, yeah. 2,000 years from now with bioengineered uh, wasps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) No, it isn't. No, it's the unbelieving Pharisees that are rejecting their Messiah. Mm -hmm. That's the context in verse, I'm sorry, chapter 23. Mm Mm-hmm. He's pronouncing judgment on them, saying you spilled the blood of the prophets. We know they're going to spill the blood of Christ. So he's pronouncing judgment on that generation. Mm-hmm. And then it leads on to Matthew 24. Um, would you like to read the whole passage or would you like to read a portion? Well, yeah, let's take it one step at a time for clarity's sake. All right, Matthew 24. I think um, I like this one the best. I think it's the best accounting um, because it it just gives you all the information. It's succinct. Um, you don't have to read the whole book of Revelation to get it. It's just short and to the point. And we can get into some of those uh, longer texts if we need to. But for sim- simplicity's sake, we'll stick in Matthew 24 for now. All right. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him these buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone turned upon another that will not be thrown down. So he's referring to the temple, um, and he's telling the disciples this. So, it's almost like their expectation would be that this is going to happen soon. Mm. <laughs> I, it's just very... I mean, whenever we get to the end times, we sort of lose all our critical reading skills at this point. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Don't worry. All right, let's keep reading. And uh, here's where you get into what is called the Olivet Discourse. This is recorded in um, Mark and Luke also. And he sat at the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will the sign of your coming 
and of the close of the age. So this is right off him talking about the destruction of the temple. They're asking, when's this going to happen? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Mm. All right, let's stop there. So this is one of the most um, quoted verses by boomers I think I've heard, because they're always like, there's wars and rumors of wars, so we're in the end times. Well... You see, um, there have always been ru- wars and rumors of wars. Yeah, almost like all of human history. Yeah. But we're special right now, right? No. He's talking about that thing, is that that generation that will hear wars and rumors of wars. And it's interesting that Josephus' account is the 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 Jewish wars, but we're going to get into that later. Yeah, and you know I can give them I can give them a little taste. Um, in his book, The War of the Jews, Josephus literally records warring factions of Jews fighting against each other's, and often Jewish false teachers that are rising up, causing these rebellions. Um, if we put this in. You know, the first century, things seemed to line up. Yeah. um, Well, everyone knows about the major factions, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Zealots. Um, The main factors were the Zealots. They were even around during Jesus' day. Mm -hmm. That would cause rebellions and everything um, regarding the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, And... It really coincides with many of the descriptions that Jesus comes out, that Jesus points out. Um, we have um, people who are claiming to be the Messiah. We have plenty of those. Um, they would lead people astray and would force them to fight in Jerusalem, rebel, and just destroy a lot of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you know, let's keep reading because it kind of talks more about this. Verse 7. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Well, that's interesting. You know, I wonder if Josephus has anything to say about that. I wonder, I mean... Well, I just happen to have a copy of The War of the Jews. No way! (laughs) Um, here's what Flavius Josephus says about earthquakes. And this is in section 445. For there broke out a prodigious storm in the night and the utmost violence and very strong winds with the largest showers of rains, with continual lightnings, terrible thunderings, and amazing concussions and bellowings of the earth. That was in an earthquake. These things were manifest indicators that some destruction was coming upon men. When the system of the world was put in this disorder, and anyone would guess that these wonders foreshadowed some grand calamities that were coming. Wow. And what's interesting about Flavius Josephus is he's not a Christian. Gasp. 
So even this non-Christian Jew says these earthquakes are foreshadowing some great calamity. I mean, these calamities have to have been really just off-putting and have to have a significant amount of disturbance for just a pagan to a a Jewish pagan to just notice that. Yeah, it it couldn't have been just like some other earthquake. Clearly there's something happening here where they're like this is different. Something bad is coming. This is foreshadowing something really bad. Mm-hmm. So, let's keep reading. Um, kingdom against kingdom, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Hmm, famines. Hmm. That's interesting. It is quite interesting. I wonder if Josephus has anything to say about famines. Um, He does, and I'll just give you the brief account of it. That um, in the Wars of the Jews, he talks about um, various famines that happen, and including one major famine that's set in... Um, in 70 AD where they have already seed where the Romans have started to siege Jerusalem and then normally a siege is to take is um, just barricading this wall barricading the city so that no one leaves and you basically just starve them out well you see they had this weird little function where the zealots were like let's get these people riled up and the only way to do this is to starve them (laughs) so they did that and then it was immediately then that the romans were like okay they're starved out let's run in but that's one major famine that happened and then you have um uh, it got so bad that they're eating their babies, like in the days of Babylon. Yeah, and that's recorded in section 634 of a woman cooking her own suckling child and eating half of it and then saving the other half for later. So, yeah, disturbing stuff. Kind of interesting that he would even record that. But Oh, it, it, I mean, <laughs> just a coincidence. Yeah, just a coincidence. Let's continue. All these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. So, birth pains, you know, they're not the full consummation. They're just indicators that something's coming. Okay. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. Hmm. They will put deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. Huh. Well, when this was happening... Did people like Christians? No, they didn't. And um, you have even uh, Keen Agrippa, I think his name was, um, who uh, her who martyred uh, James the Apostle, and was and the people were stoked about it. They were cheering him on. They're like, "We want more. We want more." Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and we. We often place the tribulation in our days, but it almost seems like Matthew is placing it in the first century. That's interesting. But, you know, if that hasn't convinced you, let's continue. Let's keep going. Um, And then they will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. 
And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. What's interesting about this is you have, you know, writings in Hebrews about not forsaking the assembly because they're under such persecution. They're scared that because lawlessness is increasing that some will abandon the fl- abandon the faith and their love will grow cold. Well, that's directly addressed in Scripture, talking to those people saying, don't forsake the assembly. Things are going bad. Don't forsake it. Again, just placing this to these people. This is basic hermeneutics, guys. It's who's the audience that he's talking to, what's going on at the time. For some reason, when we get to these passages, we just throw all that out the window. Yeah, this is not empty speculation. This is, we're using Baptist hermeneutics that would give us the trinity of believer's baptism, uh, the deity of Christ. We're using that hermeneutic for this. Yeah, it's almost like it's called the historical grammatical approach, often what we're accused of not doing. But actually, we're just using the same hermeneutic that we used to interpret everything else. Who would have thought? (laughs) Uh, Well, let's keep reading. Um, We'll start in verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Hmm. Interesting. He's saying, for those reading this, this would have been passed amongst the churches. He's saying, when you see these things, flee to the mountains. Do we have any account of people fleeing to the mountains? Yeah, it's in Eusebius' account. Mm-hmm. Um, he was actually a Christian historian, one of the first ones, the first one actually. And um, he compiled a record of what happened in 70 AD. And he talked about how whenever the Romans started coming, um, that the Christians got wind of this. And they, and he literally says, they followed what Jesus said and fled into the mountains, into the wilderness. Uh, some went into Antioch, some most went into the wilderness. And uh, some went to Alexandria. That's how you get the main uh, Christian uh, civilizations. But anyways, go on to them. Yeah, and they were spared from what was to come in Jerusalem, which is a historical fact that these things happened. Mm-hmm. Um, let's let's continue. Um, let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. So he's saying, when these things happen, get out of there. Don't waste any time. Don't worry about your possessions. Just leave. Mm-hmm. Okay. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. So it's going to be really tough if you're pregnant. Mm-hmm. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. So. The persecution, the tribulation, and all these things, they're going to be bad. And things aren't ever going to be as bad as that was. Hmm. Yeah. I think we got it bad now, guys. I know. Um, 
Imagine running from your house, leaving your iPad, leaving your TV, and just booking it to, like, South America. <laughs> What's funny is even your examples of things we're leaving behind, like, that compares much less to, you know, needing clothes. <laughs> I know, right? Like, we have it so good here in the West, and we get a little bit of people not liking Christianity, and we think it's the end times. Oh, no, they didn't place the red, uh, they didn't say Merry Christmas at Starbucks, <laughs> therefore we're all just... Yeah, they changed my Starbucks cup, what am I going to do? No, no, it's just a plain... Rapture red, me, Jesus. <laughs> plain red Starbucks, the end is coming, <laughs> oh! Oh, boy. All right, let's keep going. <laughs> and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect... Those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Hmm. Well, first I want to note that there is an elect, that there are a group of people set aside who will persevere till the very end. So. Mm hmm I just need to bring that out. Yeah, good job. Good old Calvinist Kenny. Yeah, um, and you have, you know, them talking about false Christ arising. Hmm. Is this the Antichrist, do you think? Hmm. Well, it can't be because it puts it in the plural. False Christs. Yeah. Which we'll get to later, but so does when it directly says Antichrist. It also puts it in the plural, interestingly Mm -hmm. enough. But... There were many people in that day who were claiming to be the Messiah, specifically the zealots who were like, look, uh, I'm the Christ, I'm here to lead this Jewish revolution and we'll be free from Israel, we'll we'll have free Israel and Mm -hmm. we'll reign and uh, look at this, I'm allying with this guy, I've done such a great work, let's go. Yeah. And, you know... Not to go on a tangent, but we can often see parallels to these types of things in the culture we live in. But that doesn't mean that this promise is in the future. Mm-hmm. It just means that, you know, principles that happen in Scripture, we can still look to them and, you know, apply them to our own lives. But that doesn't mean that the things happening are happening directly to us. That's a hermeneutical mistake. Yeah, he specifically talks about that generation. And like we said, it's specifically towards that generation. He's not talking about future Christians. He's talking about that generation. Yeah. All right. So I say to you, look, he is in the wilderness. Do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vulture will gather. Is this talking about the second coming? I think in uh, Revelation, um, it says Christ will be returning on the clouds. Mm-hmm. Well, oftentimes, especially in the Old Testament, when it refers to someone coming on the clouds, that's coming in judgment. Mm-hmm. It's like the way I always picture it is, um, you know, there's a storm coming. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an ominous sign. There's, there's judgment coming. Um, and oftentimes... What our, um, we'll just say dispensationalist brothers will do is they confuse the day of the Lord and the second coming. Mm-hmm. 
um, they say they're the same thing. Mm-hmm. But we would make a distinction that there's a day where Christ comes in judgment upon apostate Israel, mm-hmm. and then there's the day of the second coming. Yeah, I, I mean, um, it's really clear. I mean, it's really clear that this is going to happen in 70 AD. Mm-hmm. It's judgment language. It's apocalyptic language. And our dispensational brothers kind of tend to uh, confuse all that into one issue. Yeah. All right, let's keep going. we got a lot to cover. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give us light. Then the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now this is a big point of contention between us and the... um, you know, the the dispensational premillennial, they say, how could this have happened? The sun wasn't darkened, the moon still gives light, the stars have not fallen from heaven. What could this possibly be talking about, and how could this have possibly happened if those things didn't happen? What do you think? Well, like I said, whenever we view the end times, we need to understand its language and its terminology. Um, first off, that is clearly judgment language. It's not talking about all the stars just falling from the sky. It's talk. It has a clear point, and the point is is that there will be darkness. Yeah. So um, a lot of these passages, um, what's common is it's called Old Testament judgment language. Um, so turn over to Ezekiel thirty-two, and here's verse seven, and he's talking about judgment upon Egypt says, when I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. And in the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. So, this is talking about judgment upon Egypt, but it's pulling that same language from the Old Testament into the New Testament. All right, verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Again, this is, you know, judgment language. He's coming on the clouds um, with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Thoughts. Well, first, like I said, we've always had to... I would like to point out that there is an elect. There is an elect. (laughs) Really like that word, huh? Yes. Uh, That there is an elect people of God that will... That will persevere into the... That will persevere into glory. Yeah, and will be preserved from the the judgment to come. Yes. And then uh, the second thing I had to add is that this, these things will occur in that generation that this generation uh-huh. will not pass away yeah beginning of chapter 23 this generation mm-hmm. but let's keep going because it's actually bracketed off so in uh, verse 32 from the fig tree learn its lesson as soon as a branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves you know that summer is near So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Oh, here we go. 
Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Hmm. Yeah, so I want to deal with an argument that I've heard regarding the term this this generation, okay? So, you know, people will try to project this into the future by saying, well, when it says this generation, it's actually talking about, you know, the kind of uh, generation that's sinful, a sinful generation. So it's talking about a sinful generation 2,000 years from now. My question is, do you really think that makes sense within the context, especially with chapter 23? Obviously not. I think that's pretty well stupid. Yeah, it's pretty obvious if you start in chapter 23, he is talking to the Pharisees who are rejecting the Messiah, and he's saying, you, this generation, these things are going to come on you because you're rejecting your Messiah. This judgment is coming. It would not make sense for him to say that to the Pharisees and then them to expect that to happen 2,000 years from when they were hearing it. No, that's not how you do proper hermeneutics at all. And I would say that that's how you get things such as the papacy, such as the the Marian dogmas, and such as the the, uh, indulgences. Right. Yeah, it's important we keep these things in context because, you know, you can project whatever theology you want on the Bible, but it needs to be derived from the Bible, basic exegesis versus eisegesis. And one of the basic assumptions of exegesis is that he is talking to someone that is not directly you. So, let's let's go to Revelation. Are there any time indicators in Revelation that would say, well, these things would happen in the first century and not our time. Well, yeah. Um, you see, uh, John says, uh, I'm writing to you for what will soon happen. Uh, yeah, he all- says, um, it's literally verse one, chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Now, an argument I've heard, I don't know if you've heard this, Kendrick, but they say it must soon take place. Well, that's talking about how swift the judgment is going to be. You know, the the revelation, all this is going to happen really quickly. Is that what John is trying to get across? Uh, obviously not. I think that's a dumb argument, and you can't really make that argument in the grounds of the book of Revelation itself. Yeah, I mean, put that in context with verse 3. He said, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the word and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Oh, the time is swift. No. He's saying the time is near. It's going to happen soon. Yeah, that's how... I mean... Like I said before, this is proper hermeneutics. This is how we get the deity of Christ, the, the doctrine of the Trinity. This is good Baptist hermeneutics. And whenever we go off from that, that's how we get things like Apache helicopters coming in. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but also, 
uh, the other time, there's another time indicator that people kind of pass by, and that's the fact that the first temp, the second temple, is still standing in John's Revelation. Yeah, yeah. Well, and even even beyond the temple, I mean, you can stay in chapter one, and it sets up all all that he's going to write. Verse nine. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. Mm-hmm. John's saying he's a partner in the tribulation of what's happening. Mm-hmm. And now an argument I've heard is, well, he suffered on Patmos. That's what he was talking about. But how could he be a partner in the tribulation if that just happened to him? That would assume these other people aren't also in a tribulation? No, they're not. They're waiting for the, <laughs> for the great tribulation. No. He's a partner with tribulation. Yeah, he, he is a partaker in the tribulation with them. Mm-hmm. He puts it in the first century. And this is a letter that would have been read to all the churches. It does not make sense for a letter to be written, read to the churches, and then be projected 2,000 years in the future. How cruel would that be for these churches that are suffering intense persecution and have this letter read to them and then be like, oh, but this isn't for you. This is 2,000 years from now. You're just going to suffer. Sucks to suck. We're, we're not writing this to encourage you. This is yeah. <laughs> this is for the other, the better Christians. Yeah. And we're not going to try to interpret the whole book of Revelation for you today. But we just want to point out, hey, when interpreting these things, there there's indicators in the text that say when it's happening. And if you hold to proper hermeneutics, you're going to put it in the context that it was written. So, and and here's an objection that gets thrown our way. Well, if you interpret these things as happening in the first century, you're not interpreting everything literally. Which is true, I agree. But here's my statement to you. You don't either. No one interprets all of Revelation literally. Just ask people what the mark of the beast is, and you'll realize, oh, you're not interpreting this literally. What were the seven churches? Well, I believe they were literally the seven churches in the first century, but our dispensational brothers say these churches serve as like a type for churches in the future. Is that interpreting it literally? I mean... I would argue that preterists interpret interpreted more literally than the dispensationalists. Yeah, I literally I literally believe these things happened. Yeah, I literally believe that there was um, that some aspects of of the vision actually occurred in seventy A.D. like earthquakes and such, mm-hmm. uh, famines, um, and I believe that that's and I believe that the that the spiritual the spirituality of it however you want to you know interpret that um is real i mean we literally have israel the false lamb a beast serving as sort of a pseudo lamb Mm -hmm. going allying itself with the with the uh seven with the uh beast of seven uh, seven heads yeah um, you mean a literal beast with seven heads right a little serpent a literal serpent coming out of the sea right um, yeah yeah obviously <laughs> um, no uh, 
I believe that that's true in its spiritual sense. Yeah, how do you interpret the genre of Revelation? Well, it's known as apocalyptic, which means that it has um, a revelation, which apocalyptic means literally revelational. Mm-hmm. Um, and that um, it's talking about judgment. It's mm-hmm. judgment. I mean, uh, do I believe that uh, it's the same language used in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel? Yep. Do I believe that Israel was a literal vine? No. But do I believe that Israel, well, Israel in a sense was a vine producing sour grapes? Yeah. 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 You can't flatten everything to a literal sense or you lose the meaning. Yeah. That's just, again, you got to learn to interpret figurative language. It's all throughout the Bible. If you interpret everything literally, you're going to run into a lot of problems. Yeah, um, you're going to have Judah literally turning into a lion's cub midway through Jacob's blessing, yeah. and then you have, uh, and then you <laughs> you have Israel literally becoming a whoring person, whoring yes. after a donkey. Yeah, yeah. It, it, the The logic just doesn't it doesn't follow. It doesn't line up. And the reason that accusation gets thrown our way is because they need it to to fit their argument. But that's just not how you interpret scripture. I'm sorry. Never. But hopping off that, there's often questions regarding the end times that we need to address and show how they were fulfilled in the first century. Um, And probably the thing that comes up the most amongst the, the boomer theology is trying to identify who the Antichrist is. Oh, oh, we haven't heard that <laughs> argument before. Yeah. Let's see, though. Let's see. Obama was supposedly the Antichrist. Oh, no, it's, it's Oprah Winfrey, obviously. And then there was, yeah, there was Oprah Winfrey. Oh, it's Donald Trump now. Donald Trump now, surprisingly. <laughs> or if you ask other people, he is the, uh, he, uh, Second coming of Christ. Yeah, the second coming of Christ. (laughs) The Trump prophecy. And then you also have uh, Henry Kissinger back in the um, the 70s who was the Antichrist. Yeah. Um, So who is the Antichrist? How can we get to the bottom of this? There's a few places people hop to to figure it out, but actually there's only one passage I know of that explicitly says Antichrist, which is in... First John, um, chapter 2, verse 18. Um, and what's interesting is it puts Antichrist in the plural. So it says, you've heard the Antichrist is coming, but in fact there are many Antichrists. Hmm. Hmm. Now what's the context of First John? Well, it's, the, it's people denying the uh, resurrection and... Um, First John was act, was that chapter in First John was talking about people denying that Jesus came in the flesh. Yeah, and they were doing that because of the first um, heresy in the church, really, which was Gnosticism. It basically flattened things down to where everything that was, you know, physical and material is bad. Everything that is spiritual is good. So if Jesus came in the flesh, well, that means he was bad. So he couldn't have done that. Well, it's directly dealing with that 
heresy, and those that were, you know, saying those things, John is saying, are antichrists. Mm-hmm. So I've often heard it said, well, you know, the Pope, he's the antichrist. Does the Pope uh, say that Christ didn't return in the flesh? Uh, no. Um, in fact, that's one of the few, that's one of the things that get right um, according to the scriptures. Yeah, I mean, we're we're not Catholic, but even we know they're Trinitarian and they don't deny that Christ came bodily. So, by definition, the Pope could not be the Antichrist. And that's the only passage in the Bible. Hmm. <laughs> there you go. So, if you want Tim's thoughts on this, it's dealing with false teachers in the church, and there were quite a few of them. That's it. It's quite simple, really. We don't need to fit it into a um, eschatological scheme. It's just him dealing with false teachers. Mm-hmm. Moving on, almost like he did that with all with in, earlier in Revelation, with um, what was it, the adulteress who was Jezebel? Yeah. Oh no, I can't say that. Um, <laughs> it was the adulteress who was Jezebel. Um, and then there are many, there are like two others, I think, in the addressing up to seven churches. Oh, wait, that's just one church. Oh, seven churches. Yeah. Well, and, and to continue the thought. So oftentimes people will confuse uh, the beast of Revelation and the Antichrist. Are they the same thing? Is there a difference? And if all these things happen in the first century, well, who's the beast? Who's the beast of Revelation? What do you think, Kendrick? Well, I think that it's Henry Kissinger back in the 60s. <laughs> no. Uh, it is obviously the Roman emperor at that time. Who was? Who was uh, Who was Nero. And uh, who was persecuting Christians, who was... Um, who was literally attacking church? Um, he he hung Christians up on poles to light up the streets. Yeah, I mean, he persecuted Christians harder than any other Roman emperor ever did. Mm-hmm. It was there was a reason he was called the Beast. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is when you get into the Mark of the Beast, which is six hundred and sixty-six. In R.C. Sproul's book, The Last Days According to Jesus, um, he shows us a chart um, of the numerical equivalent of 666. Guess what that would line up with? The Hebrew rendering of Nero's name. (gasps) Huh. Well, that's coincidental, right? Uh, just purely coincidental. Uh, this is the equivalent of a Apache helicopter. <laughs> uh, frogs being turned gay by the by the fluoride. Well, what if I told you that there's a textual variant that says the mark of the beast is actually 616 rather than 666. Mm. And here's what Sproul says. One fascinating aspect of this cryptogram is that the textual variant in Revelation 13 reads 616 rather than 666. Textual analysis asks if this variation was a result of a copious error or an intentional change to accommodate the readers outside the scope of Revelation's initial Hebrew audience. The highly respected textual scholar Bruce Metzinger says, 
Perhaps the change was intentional, seeing that the Greek form, Neron Caesar, written in Hebrew characters, is equivalent to 666, whereas the Latin form, Nero Caesar, is equivalent to 616. Hmm. So, Nero actually had two names, Nero or Neron. And the two um, numbers, 666, 616, would have been the equivalent to both of those names. It's almost like, I mean, this is fascinating. Um, Virtually uh, textual variations disagree with each other. And, however, it seems like these te- this textual variant of six 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 actually agrees with uh, actually agrees with each other. They agree with each other. I'm just like, whoa, that's that's just very interesting. Yeah, um, it, it's just crazy that you know you have these two numbers and they line up perfectly with Nero, and that's not actually the only thing that lines up perfectly with Nero. So in Revelation 17, you have what is called the seven kings. And these are also conserved as um, time indicators. If you start in verse 9, um, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. So let's stop right there. Seven mountains. Was there another name for Rome? It was called the city on seven mountains. Huh. That's interesting. It's Mm. almost like it's talking about Rome. (laughs) Let's keep reading. There are also seven kings, five who had fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does, he must remain only a little while. So, if Nero is the beast of Revelation, there would have to be five kings before him. He would have to be the sixth. And there would have to be one that would come after that would not last long. What's interesting is if you follow the line of kings, starting with Julius Caesar, it goes Julius, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and that puts the sixth king at Nero. Mm Mm-hmm. And there was a king after him, Galba, who only ruled for a year. Hmm. That almost, not almost, that lines up perfectly with what is happening. And yet we didn't need any charts. We didn't need any, uh, we didn't need any graphs. We didn't need any, uh, all we needed was just history and proper Baptist exegesis. Yeah, and before we move on from this point, I want to deal with one objection. And that is, people will say, well, Julius Caesar, he wasn't a king. Or he wasn't he wasn't a king because he didn't like the title, so he took the title Caesar instead. Well, the issue with that is, every historian who recorded the kings always started with Julius Caesar. So when this was written to these people, that's how they would have understood it. They would not have understood the list beginning with Augustus. Again, we need to put this in the context that it's written to people and what's passed around 
starting with Julius is what would have been understood at the time. Wait, do people really argue that? Yes. That's just dumb. Yeah. That's a, that's a commonly argued thing, but historians start with uh, Julius, so it can pretty easily be dismissed. What the heck, man? But let's continue. Um, what about the rapture? Is there a rapture, Kendrick? Because in Matthew 24, if that passed, well, how could there be a rapture? You know, um, uh, I I like the term. I don't like the term rapture. Rapture. It came around around the 18th century. I mean, 19th century. And honestly, I don't like using that word because it's unbiblical, and it kind of leads us to assume a secret rapture that um, where a lawnmower left running on the lawn. Planes crash into the ground because the pilot was raptured. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, so often people use Matthew 24 to prove that there was some rapture. Well, I think we argued that that's already been fulfilled. There was a context that was put in. However, we do still believe in a bodily resurrection of the dead, such as in First Thessalonians. So as Christ returns at his second coming, there's a bodily resurrection of the dead. Yeah. And I, I think that's a more biblical term. But I can already hear the objection, well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, so how can you believe in the Trinity and not believe in the rapture? I mean, honestly, if you want to make that argument, go ahead. You're not going to get very far. But the second... The second, I mean, the resurrection of the bodily resurrection is a better, is a better terminology rather than, um, rather than a rapture. Um, it's sort of the issue with propitiation. Um, my professor said that, um, what was it? Sacrificial atonement was the best, was a better word than propitiation, but really propitiation is better. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, if you want to use a word that was that was made up in the 1800s, go ahead. But you got to use a more direct term, uh, one with less baggage. Yeah, it does have a lot of baggage around it. Oh, it would get flagged in the Spirit Airlines. <laughs> well, I don't know about Spirit Airlines. Maybe American or something. Oh, yeah. All right, well, um, and the last point we want to make is obviously we've assumed that Revelation was written pre-8070. Now, we could get deep into that topic, but if you're already bored, that would put you to sleep talking about that. Um, If you're interested, I'll point you in the direction of uh, Ken Gentry's book, Before Jerusalem Fell. He deals with a lot of early church fathers, the internal evidence of Revelation, and placing the date AD, or before AD 70. Um, and I will say, you know, the early dates uh, advocates are probably in the minority, um, but that's because they rely heavily on one quote from one early church father. And I think there's just clearer places to go to build an argument. Um, yeah. 
I want to hop off that point because I know which quote you're talking about mm-hmm. is from Irenaeus. Mm-hmm. And look, I appreciate an Irenaeus. Sorry. I appreciate him. I love him. He is a very foundational person in church history. He is great. But there are some things he had wrong. Oh, oh boy, it's going down. Yeah, I'm throwing my I'm, I'm throwing my hat into the gauntlet here. <laughs> um, for instance, Jesus was not 55 years old or 50 years old whenever he was crucified, and he stated that as an apostolic tradition. Um, you cannot just immediately go to Irenaeus for everything. Um, for instance, he had the. Uh, he had the um, a certain atonement view that I would say that is um, that is probably still orthodox, but that is subpar concerning our current view of the atonement. Um, and this uh, atonement theory was the re- recapitulation theory, um, where he had to live every um, every stage of life so that he could be the perfect atonement for us because uh, he lived every man's life uh, and yet and that's how he got the theory that Jesus would died whenever he was 50 years old so and then he states that he got that from apostolic tradition which balloons into uh, Mary being co-redemptrix. So... Yeah, big mess. I'm saying that he was great. Don't get me wrong. Love his early stuff. But... Honestly... He... He falls... He fails in certain areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what's interesting is Eusebius... He, he kind of goes the preterist route with these passages, but for some reason... He dates Revelation as a late date. But I think that's because he's relying on Irenaeus. Yeah, it's it's really it really is that. Um honestly, if he were alive now, I would say that he would be more preterist. And if he had his and if we had him on the table right now, he might be if he might be a preterist. Our view of preterism. Mm-hmm. But he relies so much on Irenaeus, which everyone did back then. Yeah. He was a major Christian figure. He was early, very early, and that's why people relied on him. Yeah. Well, um, let's, let's close out this episode, and I want to close out maybe with a little warning. Um, when I first learned these things, I thought all these things I've been taught my whole life that are in the future happened does this mean that the second coming happened does this mean that the resurrection of the dead has happened what's going on with earth um has all prophecy been fulfilled i want to i want to give you hope because no well let's think of the basic timeline that most um most views for the end times hold to there's the tribulation there's the millennium and then there's the second coming all right if the tribulation has passed, which is 
what we dealt with today is mostly the passages that deal with the tribulation. Well, where does that put us? That puts us in the kingdom era. Yeah, the millennium, or people call it the age of the church, things like these. Um, so that would put us in the millennium, so that means the second coming has not yet happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so have hope, brothers. This just means that Christ is sitting on his throne, ruling and reigning from heaven, and um, this is what... We're going to get into this more next episode, um, but if we're in the millennial reign... We can have the hope of victory here on earth. And to to our friends who hold to a different view regarding the end times, maybe think things will get worse. Well, things are going to get worse. Things are worse. And you're not going to be raptured out of it. So I need you to know, whether you believe that or not, you need to get on board. We will join hands with you even if we disagree but we need you to join the fight with us. We need people to get off their hands and to actually begin to push back and fight. Yeah, the, this is a time where we need to focus on this huge, huge enemy of secularism, of atheism, liberalism. I mean, they're all the same. They're all the. They're all one and the same. We've got to fight against it. Um... This is what irks me about some of the SBC characters, uh, namely one, Layton Flowers, um, (laughs) who focuses on Calvinism so much that he should use his brain for against against atheism. This is literally, I think, atheism might have been one of the greatest enemies to one of the greatest enemies against the church today. Mm -hmm. We will conquer it. But we need people to get off of their hands and actually do something. Yeah. Yeah, join us in the fight. Older men, don't don't become black pilled, don't become depressed, don't become hopeless. We will welcome you with open arms. Join us in the fight.